The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turning your Bibles to Revelation 20. This morning we're going to be studying verses 11 through 15, Judgment Day. In June of 2007, I was in Greece with my daughter Jenny. Uh, and I was there to preach at a missionary conference. We had the opportunity uh, to visit Athens while we were there. And to visit the Acropolis, one of the most famous ancient sites in Greece. With its famous ruins standing hundreds of feet above the bustling modern city of Athens. And uh, as we're climbing up that winding road up to the top of that uh, famous mountain, it was very hot. I remember that. It was a very hot day. But off to the side as we're going up, I saw a, a kind of a, a rocky, a small rocky outcropping, like a little knob or a hill off to the side. And there was a, a road that kind of turned off to it. And uh, we went off and there was a plaque written in Greek and in, in English. And some stairs going up, and I suddenly realized what it was. That was Mars Hill. That was the Areopagus, where Paul, as it's recorded in Acts 17, had discussed the gospel, had preached the gospel to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that gathered there daily to talk about and listen to the latest ideas. And on that plaque was written uh, Paul's defense of the Christian gospel is recorded in Acts 17. And it culminated with this statement in Acts 17.31. Paul said this to the philosophers there in Athens. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That's how the message there at Mars Hill ended. And when these brilliant Greek philosophers heard of the resurrection of the dead, they scoffed and mocked. To them in their Greek philosophy, their anti-physical philosophy, it was just utterly ridiculous that spirit would ever want to take the body again, it made no sense. But some listened, some were interested, so I want to hear you more about this. God has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. That man is Jesus Christ, and that day is judgment day. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Revelation 20. As Jenny and I stood and looked at that plaque... At those words, most of the tourists that were going up to the Acropolis just walked by us, didn't go off to see. I think generally it's just the Christians that go off and see it. It's not much to look at. It's not all that impressive. And on the rock where the plaque was mounted, there was all this graffiti. I'd forgotten that, but Jenny reminded me about that. Far down below, in the streets of that modern city, bustling businessmen and shoppers and tourists and all kinds of people... Hardly paying any attention at all to the concept of Judgment Day. 
people who sprayed their graffiti. I don't know what they were thinking, but they certainly were not thinking about the terror of Judgment Day, the reality of Judgment Day. Another time that I was in Greece, I visited uh, a hotel in Corinth. I had the chance to go visit Corinth, which is not far from Athens. And I remember uh, talking to the proprietor of that hotel. And I said, do you realize that your city, Corinth, is famous all over the world? He had no idea what I was talking about. No idea. I said, well, in what way? I said, well, it's in the Bible. I said, really? It is? This guy was a Greek Orthodox, as most Greek, uh, are, but he'd never read the Bible. He wasn't aware that of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It didn't, he wasn't aware of that. And we had the chance to go up to Acrocorinth, to the uh, old uh, Corinth there, and there was the Bema seat that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5, where we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives. But this man, this citizen of Corinth, had no idea about any of it. And I think that's just true. I think it's true of the natural man, the natural human just doesn't really think much about Judgment Day. I think it's true here in Durham, North Carolina, just like in Athens, people are bustling. I mean, tomorrow, people are going to get up and begin their week, and they're going to go to work uh, here in the Triangle. They're going to uh, go to their jobs, and, and most of them are not going to think about Judgment Day. It's going to happen all over America. Stock brokers in, in New York are going to ride the subway, and they're going to get to Wall Street and get ready to earn a lot of money. Um, or hopefully not lose a lot of money for their, their clients, but they're, going, they're not going to think about Judgment Day. Legislative assistants in Washington, D.C. are going to go to their offices and they're going to do their job, and they're not going to think anything about Judgment Day. Professors of religion in Chapel Hill are going to think of new ways to destroy the faith of those that are coming to listen to them lecture. And many of the students there in Chapel Hill or Duke or State are not going to think about Judgment Day at all. But we Christians, we should be different. We should be able to see now, this morning, with eyes of faith, this great white throne that's coming. We should be able to see it. And we should realize the reality of what's coming, the judgment day. We should absorb its lessons for us as Christians and, and its responsibilities for us as evangelists, as messengers of the gospel. The very next action that's going to happen in this marvelous book of Revelation is the new heaven and new earth. And I can't wait to get there. Revelation, I mean literally, not just preaching. I just can't wait to get to the new heaven and new earth. But I also can't wait if the Lord should tarry to get there even next week and talk about the new heaven and new earth. But this is the final act of this present evil age in which we live. In which there is death and mourning and crying and pain. This great white throne judgment. Well, it begins in verse 11 with a description of this great white throne and the final day of human history in this present evil age. The Bible reveals that human history is linear. It's linear. It had a beginning. It has progressed now through its stages. Had a middle. It will come to an end. That's the biblical view of history. It's linear. We know this from many different ways. From the very beginning in Genesis 1, there's, first, there's a first day and there's evening and there's morning and the second day and the third and fourth and they're counted. The days are counted there in Genesis 1. And that began the unfolding of history. We're told in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. There's a sequence to them. They have a beginning. They will unfold through a middle and then they will come to an end. 
That's history. Our personal history is linear. The history of the world is linear. Many verses teach this. Psalm 22, or sorry, Revelation 22 at the end, the very uh, next chapter, uh, verse 13, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's linear. There's a sequence. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, to the A, B, C, D, all the way to the Z day, to the final day. There's a beginning and there will be an end. Eastern religions posit an endless cycle of, of, of birth and, and life and, and death and then rebirth, reincarnation, and then it just, just keeps on going until finally you escape karma and you get out of this endless cycle and you become nothing. A drop in an endless sea. That's what they think. But the Bible teaches that history had a beginning. It's making progress and will have an end. And for us, if we are not among the final generation... Hebrews 9.27 says that, that we are destined to die and after that to face judgment. Paul calls this our present evil age. It says in Galatians 1, 3, and 4, the Lord Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. This present evil age is defined by the defiant rebellion of the human race against God the King, against the throne Established in Revelation 4. This rebellion is led in secret by Satan and his demons. But that's what this present evil age is all about. And it, and it seems like this present evil age, characterized by death, mourning, crying, and pain, will go on forever, but it won't. It won't. It's going to come to an end. And that end is judgment day. That's where it's going to. That's the end, the final day of this present evil age. And this is the consistent teaching of Scripture. There are many, many verses in Scripture that teach this theme of Judgment Day. Psalm 96, 13 says, The Lord comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. Jude talks about Enoch, the seventh from Adam. That's a long time ago. And Enoch saw Judgment Day coming prophetically. And he said, behold, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. And to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way. And of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So that's coming. Enoch saw it a long time ago. He saw it by faith. It's the only way we can see it. Now Satan has tried to deceive us about this. From the very beginning when he was tempting Eve... And he said to her, you will not surely die. There's not going to be any accountability. Nothing bad will happen to you in reference to this fruit. It's been from the very beginning. He's tried to get us to not believe in Judgment Day, that it's not coming. Unbelievers deny Judgment Day or they minimize it. In Psalm 94, it says, how long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. They say the Lord does not see. God pays no heed. In other words, there's no judgment day. There's no accountability for this. Or again, Psalm 10. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have any trouble. 
Now, here in this text, the center of Judgment Day is a great white throne and someone seated on it. And I've been saying we can only see that throne now by faith. Someday you won't need any faith to see it. It'll be there. You'll be there. But we can see it now by faith. Only by faith. And it's the, the partner to the earlier vision that we had in Revelation 4. Remember when the, when the doorway to heaven was standing open above John and a voice came from heaven saying, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once he was in the spirit and he went up through the doorway and there he saw a throne with someone seated on it. It's the same kind of image here. It's the same throne. It's the throne of Almighty God. And the more that we keep by faith by reading the scripture, saturating our minds in the scripture, the more we keep judgment day in front of us, the better it will be for us on that day. The less regrets we'll have on that day. It says in Acts 24, the apostle Paul said, he believed that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, he said. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. You hear the ethical implications of believing in Judgment Day. Paul said, because death doesn't end everything, because I believe there'll be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, because there's a Judgment Day coming, Paul said, I strive always to keep my conscience clear, vertically before God, horizontally before other people. It has ethical implications, this idea of Judgment Day. Now, the throne is a place where a king sits. The basis of Judgment Day is the kingship of God. And we, his created beings, are his subjects. The kingship of God. God is the creator of the universe. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. And because he made everything, he has the right to rule over everything. And every king rules by law. God has made laws that he wants us to obey. And he gave us the Ten Commandments. And we are to obey the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make or worship any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. That means deeply desire in your heart. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jesus took the coveting aspect of heart inquiry and went back to the earlier two commandments of murder and adultery and said, God's actually looking at your heart in all of this. And you may not have murdered your brother, but if you're angry with him, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And you may not have actually literally committed adultery, but if you even look at a woman lustfully, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And he wasn't going beyond the spirit of the law there. It's what the 10th commandment is all about. It's, a, it's a, a commandment about what you're doing with your mind and your heart and your intentions. And Jesus is just saying, I'm going to judge you based on your heart response to the entire law of God. And then Jesus summarized all the law. That's negative. Most of them are, you shall not, 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 not. But... He turns it around with the two great commandments and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets hang. Everything on those two commandments. Well, that law exposes all of us as sinners. 
Every one of us has violated the ten and the two commandments. All of us. The essence of sin is lawlessness or breaking of the law of God. If you don't understand the law or you don't think it applies to you, you will probably think that you're sinless, that you don't have anything to fear from judgment. It is the law alone that convicts the guilty that they're guilty. It's the word of God that does that. The Puritans would call it law work. You have to, in evangelism, apply the Ten Commandments, apply the Two Commandments to the person you're talking to and say, do you not see that this is the standard of the king and we violated it? Well, if he is the the creator, he's the king and ruler... And therefore, he will also be the judge. And he is going to assess us or evaluate us. Salvation corresponds to his kingship because we, by faith, through the grace of God, we get to enter back into the kingdom of heaven. By faith in Jesus, we are offered amnesty through the blood of Jesus of all of the, the transgressions and the sins we've ever committed, all the ways we've violated the ten and the two. We are offered free and full forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And if so, we will, the New Testament teaches, enter the kingdom of heaven. We will enter the kingdom of God. And uh, when we get there, we will find a king ruling on a throne forever. Only now we don't have a problem with that. Now we're delighted in the kingship of God. We see that Jesus' yoke of kingly authority is easy and his burden is light. And we are delighted to take that yoke and that burden on us because it's a beautiful thing to submit to King Jesus. That's what salvation is all about. So, the great white throne. Why is it called the great white throne? Well, you get a sense of the greatness of it, the, the, the massive magnitude of this throne. It's an imposing, majestic, large throne so as to make us feel small. Like in Psalm 2, like we are like grasshoppers before him. We are small compared to him. And we're supposed to feel that way. And it's white because it's pure and holy, free from any blame. It's a perfectly righteous judgment that he will do. God's justice is of his essence. All his ways are just, it says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. His righteousness, Psalm 36, his righteousness is like majestic mountains. His justice is like the great deep. It's just a a limitless commitment to justice. That's God. Now the scripture, the New Testament reveals that God has entrusted the judgment of the human race to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said on the Areopagus to Mars Hill. He said, he is going to judge the whole world by one man, the one he raised from the dead. That's Jesus. So Jesus taught this openly in John chapter 5. Who is seated on the great white throne? It's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He says in John 5, 22 and 23, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Isn't that incredible? You should honor, that means worship Jesus like you worship the creator God. And you'll see that on judgment day when he is the one judging the entire world. Or again in John 5, 27, Jesus said that the father, God, has given him, Jesus, authority to judge because he is the son of man. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats... 
just having a, a flashback, my sister, Julie, when she was married, she wanted me to read this text at her wedding. I'll never forget that. We were up in Vermont having a practice, you know, how they have the rehearsal, and I had no role to play except just to read the scripture, and there were two other scripture readers, and she wanted me to read the sheep and the goats, because she has a heart for the poor and needy, I think, but that's why she wanted it read, but I just don't think she had reviewed the text and all that it said. It's judgment day. And you remember how it begins. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I went through that whole thing. I had memorized it a long time before that. And I just read it very clearly, slowly, and powerfully. I have never been to a wedding rehearsal like that. It was quite a moment. You could have heard a pin drop. Everyone's looking at me with eyes like saucers. Are you going to read that tomorrow, like at the wedding? And Julie, to her credit, she's like, I want it read. Read it. It's powerful. The judgment of Christ is perfect. Because he judges in perfect harmony with the will and the nature and the commandments and laws of his father. He's the perfect embodiment of the righteous character of his heavenly father. He's a perfect judge. He says in John 5.30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. Because I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Perfect just judgment. Isaiah said the same thing in Isaiah 11. 2 through 4, speaking of Jesus the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with justice he will give decisions. With, with, with righteousness he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the breath of his mouth, with the rod of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Isaiah 11, 2 through 4. That's how he's going to judge. It's a perfectly just judgment. Now, does judgment day come in stages? That's a question that many evangelicals ask. Some people believe, some evangelicals believe, we're not going to be at the, at the great white throne judgment at all. Especially those that cling to a literal, or believe in a literal millennium. They just say sequentially, that's already happened. They say that Christians don't need to be there because we were already judged at the cross, and so we will skip judgment day because we're already perfectly righteous in Christ. And they especially quote Romans 8.1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think this shows a great misunderstanding of what condemnation means. I do not believe that there is no evaluation for us because we're in Christ Jesus. I don't believe that there is therefore now no reckoning or giving an account for us now that we're in Christ Jesus. I think we actually will give him an account for everything we've done in the body. Everything, good or bad. Because the scripture says that we will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive... What is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. We're all going to be there. And the sheep and the goats that I just said, how does that even happen if we're not all there? 
clearly he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And it's not a parable. It's a prediction, a prophetic prediction. It's likened to the separation that the shepherd does with sheep and goats. But he's not saying, I have a parable to tell you about the kingdom. He's saying, when the Son of Man comes, he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to gather everyone in front of him and he's going to separate them and he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then he's going to judge them. It's just a prediction, friends. It's not a metaphor. It's not a parable. It's just telling us what's going to happen. So we're all going to be there. Romans 14 says the same thing. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's a plain teaching. We're going to give an account to God for how we have lived. Now, I believe there's an infinite difference between giving an account for what you did with the gifts you received and the time and energy and money that you had to be stewards of. There's a big difference between giving an account to your Savior and being condemned to the lake of fire. There's an infinite difference between those two. But you're going to give Him an account. Either way, though, we can all agree that this great white throne judgment described here is the last judgment. There's no more judgment after this. No need. For sin will be destroyed forever. Death will be defeated forever. And we will have no need of this kind of judgment in the new heaven, new earth. Well, look at verse 11, what happens. It's the end of the present universe. It says, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. This is an awesome reality. We've talked about it a number of times, but this verse seems to say it. And the next in Revelation 21.1 says it plainly. This present physical universe is going to go away. It will in some sense be no more. Everything will be destroyed. In this text, it's almost they're personified. Earth and sky are personified. And it's like they're running in terror from the presence of the one on the great white throne. Earth and sky fled from his presence, but there was no place for them. Another way to understand these words is just this is the end of the physical order as we know it. Look at the very next verse. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. You know what this means? It means that Christ... The judge of all the earth is more permanent than the present heavens and earth. He's going to outlast them forever. And this is the very thing the author of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1. Where God the Father speaks to God the Son in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. The Father says to the Son, In the beginning, O Lord, you, the Son, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Now, what's going to happen to the present heavens and earth? Uh... Will the next universe be made in some sense out of the stuff that we lived with here? Or will that be entirely destroyed and removed and then an entirely new creation made out of new stuff? There are two different evangelical views on this. Will this present groaning, decaying earth be purified in some marvelous way or rehabilitated or renewed or... God will, to some degree, speak it out of existence and speak a whole new universe into existence. 
Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way for the second view. He says, there, will, there is to be an end of the material heavens and earth which we know. It is not that they are to be purified and rehabilitated, but the reverse of creation will occur. They are to be uncreated, spoken out of existence by the word of God. As they came from nothingness at the word of God, they are to be sucked back into nothingness by the same word of God. Well, that's one evangelical view. And it seems to line up with Peter's strong assertion in 2 Peter 3, where it says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The word elements, stoicheia, relates to the actual atoms. Like the, the atoms, the atomic structure will just come apart. Like Einstein's e equals mc squared turns matter into energy. And this, this, all the matter will just turn massively into, into a big thermonuclear blast of heat. And it'll be gone. There's this roar. However, I don't think 2 Peter 3.10 deters me from saying that I actually think that the new heavens and the new earth is in some powerful, significant way linked to this present universe. Linked to it in some... So I speak of a resurrected earth and a resurrected heavens rather than entirely newly made out of nothing, ex nihilo. Similar to our resurrection bodies, there has to be a connection between the two or else we don't use the language resurrection. Just like there was a connection between Jesus' first body that was wrapped up with all the linens and was buried and then comes to life and says, touch me and see, look at my wounds. Thomas said, unless I put my hands and wounds inside, I need to see continuity. It's like, here's the continuity. I have been raised from the dead. And so I think the, that the earth is going to be in some sense raised. There are words like renewal used in Matthew 19, 28. At the renewal of all things. Same thing in Acts 3, 21. God is going to restore all things. Even more importantly for me is the promise made to Abram, Abraham. Do you remember how God said to Abram? Um, remember how Abram and Lot, their, their she, uh, shepherds were bickering and there just wasn't enough, enough pasture for all of their, their animals. And they were having problems. And so... Finally, Abram and Lot got together and said, Tell you, why don't you just go wherever you want. The whole land's in front of you. Go where you want. And Lot went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Very bad move. But he went down there. Gets rescued later. But that's where he went. And then Abram is there. And the Lord comes to Abram and says, after Lot had parted from him. This is Genesis 13, 14 and 15. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north, south, east and west. All the land that you see... I will give, now here's the key statement, to you and to your offspring forever. Very important statement. And he says it again in Genesis 17, 8, after his name had been changed to Abraham. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give to you as an everlasting possession. To you and to your descendants after you and I will be their God. Well, we find out from Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They died not having gotten the promise. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. A few verses later, Hebrews eleven sixteen, They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. So... You know the old uh, thing like bait and switch, you know, where you, you're like, you know, you offer something, but then you get something else. 
Well, it's not okay even if the thing that you're offered instead is even better. You were promised X and you're not going to get X. Turns out in the end, I, well, it didn't work out. But I'm going to give you something even better. I just don't see that. He's going to get the land he walked on. But it's just going to be resurrected. Because the feet he's going to be walking in will be even better than the feet he was in then. So there's a similarity between the resurrection body and the resurrected earth. And I think that's marvelous. Paul links this earth and our resurrection bodies in Romans 8. It says, the earth, the creation, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, listen to this, our adoption as sons the resurrection of the body. So creation is waiting for us to get our resurrection bodies. You know why? Because I think that creation is going to get its resurrection self too. I did all that this week so I won't have to do it next week. When it says, I saw a new heaven and new earth. Because we have plenty of exciting things to talk about next week. So I went ahead and borrowed from that and did it here. But the earth and sky fled from the presence of the great white throne. And all of the dead are arraigned in court. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Every single human being standing before God's judgment throne. They were dead. They're now alive in resurrection bodies fit for eternity. Jesus said this was going to happen. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, said Jesus. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, there'll be no exceptions. Nobody is going to be left out. Everybody's going to be there. John Phillips, in commenting on this, said this. There's a terrible fellowship there. The dead, small and great, stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Little men and paltry women whose lives were filled with pettiness, selfishness, and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Whose very sins were drab and dowdy, mean, spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common, and cheap. The great will also be there. Men who sinned with a high hand, with dash and courage and flair. Men like Alexander and Napoleon. Hitler and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the present world for their stage and who died unrepentant at last. They will be there. Now one and all arraigned and on their way to be damned. A horrible fellowship congregated together for the first and last time. End quote. That's a powerful picture. When Hitler committed suicide in that reinforced concrete bunker, he thought he was escaping the Red Army and its rage. He did not realize a far greater enemy was waiting for him on the other side. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that they can do nothing more to you. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who has power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said it is appropriate to fear the God who can condemn to hell. And that quote made me think also about all the small, insignificant, not famous sinners. 
the one that, for the most part, human history has been made up of, but they've not been recorded because their actions aren't noteworthy. They'll be there too, unrepentant for their small sins, not realizing they were sinning against an infinitely glorious God, and there will be an infinite penalty for those so-called small sins. I think about elderly unbelievers. You know, I picture them like in some rural setting where they're on, I don't know, a porch, rocking in rocking chairs, and they're drinking sweet tea, really sweet, and they're just sitting there talking picture in my picture of men, older men talking and they're telling off-color jokes and they're gossiping and they're bitter and they can't do much more sin because they're just old and weak and sick. But they, they're coming to the sordid end of a life of sin, unrepentant without any concern for the day that I'm talking about here, Judgment Day. And there's no escape. There's no way to escape it. There's no need to send out heavenly federal marshals to hunt down fugitives from justice. There's nowhere to escape to. It says in Amos chapter 9, not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. It's what he says in verse 13. Look at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Now, in Revelation 21.1, the sea will be destroyed, soon destroyed, no more. The sea will be no more, it says. But before that happens, all the sailors and merchants and commercial fishermen and wealthy yacht owners that were out on a cruise and sailed into a hurricane, anyone who died and was buried at sea or sank in, into the sea, the sea will give up the dead that was in them, it says. So you could think the victims of the Titanic or the Lusitania. The Titanic, you know, down at the bottom with, with several miles of cold North Atlantic water above them. Come up out of that and come before the great white throne. Anyone eaten by a great white shark? Anyone, anyone who died of dysentery on a British man of war in the 19th century and was buried with honors with a cannonball wrapped around their sheeted body? They're going to come up. Everyone will be there. And it says, death and Hades will give up the dead that was in them. That's the grave, the holding place uh, of the bodies and souls of sinners who died before the end of the world. Death and the grave. Most people, that's most people. Most people die on land and they are buried on land or cremated. And their bodies will come together in order to be judged and condemned. And death and the corruption of the grave will no longer be needed. Their job will be finished. The new home of the dam will be the lake of fire. No need for the grave anymore. And we will all of us give an account to our creator, our king. The books will be open. Look at verse 12. The books of deeds and the book of life. Verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The books represent God's accurate record keeping. God is a meticulous record keeper. Much of the Old Testament, much, much of the New Testament actually, is history of things that actually were said and done. God's a very careful, meticulous, and very accurate record keeper. The Bible says even the very hairs of our head are all numbered. All the days ordained for us were written in God's book before one of them came to be. Now this is a different book, what we actually did, what happened. Two are the same, I think, in the end. But now it's happened. We actually did it. It's not predestined at that point. It's history. It's occurred. 
And it's going to be utterly meticulous. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Now, I found a website that tells us how many words that, that, how many words that is, all right? On average, according to this team of linguists, people speak approximately 20,000 words a day. Actually, they didn't say that. They told how many words men speak and how many words women speak. That was the point of the article. I just added them together and divided by two. So this is the average for the human race. And don't come after me and ask me the number for the men and the women. I don't remember what it was. But you can look it up. But let's just stick with the average. 20,000 words. That means over the course of 80 years of speaking, that would be half a billion words you would give an account for. Half a billion words. I remember sharing the gospel with someone. They said, I don't even remember what I said like before we started talking. It's like, well, God remembers every careless word you have spoken. You'll give an account for it. Perfect record. Also, another verse gives a sense of the meticulousness of this, and that's 2 Peter 3.8. It says, with the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years. Think about that. I, like one day, 24-hour period, 24-hour period, God sees it in super slow motion as if it lasted a millennium. He doesn't miss anything. The slight glance of the eye, the slight inclination of the heart, the little action, the little snide comment, it, it's all there. Everything. There's nothing that, there's no way we can escape. And his judgment is perfectly just and righteous. We will not be able, Job said, to answer him one in a thousand times. And he'll have no need of witnesses or cross-examination for this court trial. No need for that at all. No need for DNA evidence. Do you remember that story when uh, God revealed to Abraham and Sarah that a year from then they would have a baby? Do you remember what Sarah did? She laughed. She thought, she thought it was funny. I think she was thinking about her husband at that particular moment. But anyway, it's like, shall, uh, you know, is he going to, no, never mind. But anyway, um, but she just thought it was funny. And God said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? A year from now, I'll return and Sarah will have a child. And she was afraid and said, I didn't laugh. And he ended it saying, oh, yes, you did. That's it. That's, what the, that's a little moment of what the court trial will be like. No need for witnesses. There will be a prosecutor. His name is Christ. And there will be a judge. And the book of deeds will be a perfect record of everything we've done. And on the basis of those deeds, we will be judged. People have a hard time with this. They say, wait, wait, I thought we were justified by faith, not by works. I'm not talking about justification. I'm talking about evaluation. I'm talking about identification. What are you? Who are you? Are you sheep or goat? That's what I'm talking about. We're not saved by our works, but we will most certainly be evaluated or assessed or judged by our works. No one can be saved by works. You can't use good deeds to pay for your sins. But we will most certainly be evaluated. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Jesus is the perfect fruit inspector. He will look at the fruit of your lives. All of the words, the words are enough. If he has your words, he knows who you are. Because out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. But he's going to have everything. He's going to have all of your, all of your deeds. And verse 13 says, each person was judged according to what he had done. Romans 2 makes this plain. Listen to Romans 2 carefully. 
verses 5 through 11. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's the great white throne judgment. God will give to each person according to what he has done. It couldn't be plainer. Romans 2, 6. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, to them he will give eternal life. It's a kind of life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Then he inverts it. Verse 9, Romans 2, 9 says, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. That's judgment day. It's amazing what some commentators try to do with that, but that's just plain truth. We are going to be evaluated... We are going to be assessed. We are going to be judged by our works. Our works will identify us perfectly. But Christ also is able to probe the heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But if you're even angry in your heart, you're in danger of the fire of hell. He'll look at the heart intentions. He's able to do that as well. Revelation 2.23 says of Jesus, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. I search your intentions. I look at your mind, your heart, and what you intended. It says in 1 Corinthians 4.5, He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of human hearts. Did you hear that? He'll look at the motives behind everything that you did. And there will be no secrets on that day. It says in Romans 2.16, on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. Or he says in Luke 12, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So he's talking about judgment day and he's saying at that day, secrets will be, there's nothing that will be secret at that point. So that's the book of deeds, the book of works. What about the book of life? Thank God there's a book of life. Amen. Thank God there's a savior and a salvation for sinners like us. We can't survive this kind of scrutiny. Not one of us can. But there is something called the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Verse 12, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life is the record of all of those who are born again through faith in Christ. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. They also are sinners. They also violated the Ten Commandments. They also violated the Two Commandments. But there's a difference, an infinite difference. By the working of the Holy Spirit of God on them, they came to see their sins while they lived here on earth. And they turned away from those sins in repentance. They turned toward Christ, the crucified Savior. They turned toward Jesus for forgiveness and atonement for their sins. And at that moment, their sins were all wiped away. And they received the gift of forgiveness. John 5, 24, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. And it all comes down to what you believe about Jesus. Remember when Lazarus died and Martha went out to interact with Jesus? She's weeping distress and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? Oh. And she said, Lord, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then he asked her the most important question she could ever face. Do you believe this? And she gave that beautiful testimony. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the one who was to come. I believe that you are my Savior. I believe you are the Son of God who came into the world. If you can make Martha's confession, you will not be condemned to the lake of fire. You'll be rescued. You will not be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to Romans 5, 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more, having been justified, shall we, will we, in the future, be saved from God's wrath through him? That's a future salvation that hasn't come yet. It's going to come on that day. You're going to get saved on that day. On the great white throne day, you'll be saved from the lake of fire by a living Savior. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? If a dead Jesus on the cross atones for your sins, how much more will a living advocate sitting on the throne of judgment advocating for you save you finally? 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are waiting for his son from heaven, Jesus, the righteous one who rescues us from the coming wrath. Praise God. Now, this is a whole other topic for another sermon. Not today. We will, as Christians, be evaluated on the quality of our works. That's the gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw teaching in 1 Corinthians 3. I've covered it many times from this pulpit. And that, I believe, will happen then as well. But I'm not going to cover that now. We'll talk about it in future weeks. But non-Christians, their deeds will be the basis of their condemnation. Their actions, their sins, their violation of the Ten Commandments. Romans 1, 29 through 31 says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Or again, the acts of the flesh in Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's on the basis of actual sins committed that they're condemned. Don't imagine it's on the basis of they never heard of Jesus. It's because of actual sins they've committed, violating their conscience, violating the moral laws of God written in their souls. It's on the basis of those sins they'll be condemned. And the lake of fire is God's eternal judgment for his enemies. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And there we are told, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 66, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. They will be, the damned will be in some kind, some version of an upgraded or resurrection body. They're going to come out of their graves. They'll be raised out to be condemned. And that experience in that, I don't know what to call it, but resurrected body in hell will be infinitely worse than those who are apart from their bodies suffering now in torment. 
That's the future for the, for the damned. The atonement of Christ is our only hope. And it is a sure and certain hope. Jesus came as the Son of God and died on the cross in our place that we might have forgiveness of sins. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Do you know that your name is there? Look at verse 15 again. If anyone's name was not found written in the Book of Life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Judgment day is coming. The great white throne is coming. Every day brings us closer and closer. You don't know when you'll die. And at that, from that point on, there's no possibility of repentance and forgiveness. So for you, that might be today, this very day. Today, you're hearing the gospel. Today, you are being warned of this coming judgment day. Have you fled the wrath to come by trusting in Christ? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And if you know that it is, if you are a Christian... First and foremost, just be sober about this. This is a serious, a sober topic. You are going to stand before God and give him an account for your life. Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That's what I, I want to live a holy life. It's a motivation for holiness. Friends, it's also a motivation for evangelism. We're surrounded by people who don't think this is even going to happen. And our job is to share the gospel. God, man, Christ response. Share that. God, the creator, therefore king, therefore lawgiver, therefore judge. Start there. We, human beings, created by God the creator, should have been submissive to God the king, should have obeyed God the lawgiver, but we didn't. We violated his laws. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thirdly, God's fourth office, after creator, king, lawgiver, judge, savior, savior. And that's Jesus. He sent his son into the world to save us. Preach that gospel. And that if people repent and trust in him, they'll have eternal life. Close with me in prayer. Father, we have been sobered by the word of God. We are mindful of the seriousness of this topic of judgment day. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us who are believers in Christ to see it by faith, to know that it's coming, and to live our lives in holy fear and reverent fear, that we should fear sin and Satan, and that we should know that we've been delivered from the fear of hell. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Help us, O oh Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord and knowing the love of Christ, persuade others to flee the wrath to come and find in Jesus a warm and welcome Savior. We pray in His name and for His glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.